0: Well, this morning I want to talk about the subject of life after death. Needless to say, uh, this is a controversial topic that is typically treated with some degree of skepticism, particularly by those in the medical and scientific community. However, two years ago, the medical journal Resuscitation published the results of the largest ever study into near-death and out-of-body experiences by scientists at Southampton University in England. After examining 2,060 patients who suffered cardiac arrests in 15 hospitals in the UK, the US, and in Austria, they discovered that nearly 40% of the people who survived described some kind of awareness after they were declared clinically dead and before their hearts were restarted. The doctor who led this study said these experiences, quote, warrant further investigation. Another researcher said this, quote, there is some very good evidence here that these experiences are actually happening. We just don't know what is going on. We are still very much in the dark about what happens when you die, and hopefully this study will help shine a scientific lens onto that, end quote. Well, I'm here to say this morning that there is no reason for anyone to be in the dark about what happens when we die. And hopefully our study in God's Word today will shine a light on this critical, even life and death issue. I think one of the biggest questions that all of us wonder about and some of us even worry about in life is what's going to happen to us when we die? Death is something that we don't like to talk about. In fact, we do everything we can to avoid the subject. I'm sure you've noticed that our culture has even developed a list of phrases to use when someone dies so we don't have to mention the word death. We say things like they've passed away or they passed on. Sounds less harsh. They're no longer with us. In an attempt to lighten maybe the harsh reality of death, we say funny things like, well, they're pushing up daisies, they've kicked the bucket, they bit the dust, they bought the farm, and yet witty remarks like these do nothing to change the fact that we're all going to die someday, and there's nothing we can do about it. It's only a matter of time until death overtakes us, and none of us knows when that will happen or how it will happen. The Bible says that, that man does not know his time, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 12, and that no man has the authority over the day of his death, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 8. But the Bible also says it's appointed for men to die once and then the judgment. In other words, all of us have an appointment with death someday, and there's nothing we can do about it. An old dead English preacher by the name of J.C. Ryle said this, he says, It's an astonishing thing that with such an appointment, any man can be careless and unconcerned. Surely none are more foolish as those who are content to live unprepared to die. Well, this Easter service is a wonderful opportunity for all of us to make sure that we're prepared to die. I often ask people if they know for sure where they're going to go when they die, where they will spend eternity, and most people I've asked don't know for sure where they're going, and frankly, it scares them. I think it's safe to say that the majority of people in the world are afraid to die. It's partly the fear of the grief and the pain that's often associated with death, but mostly it's the fear of the unknown. Well, today we're going to get a glimpse into the unknown. And I want to look with you at one of the most riveting stories that Jesus ever told, which is only found in Luke chapter 16. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn there now, Luke chapter 16, And we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 31, and in this sobering passage, we're given an unprecedented opportunity to see what happens to people after they die. It's as if Jesus pulls back the curtains of death and lets us take a sneak peek into eternity. And we're given a breathtaking preview of the glories of heaven and a heart-stopping preview of the torments of hell. Let's read the passage together here, Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Jesus said, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, "Child." Remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And then note carefully the last two verses, which are why I wanted to teach from this text this morning, which may seem at first glance an odd text to choose for Easter Sunday, a Sunday to celebrate the resurrection. But notice what Jesus said here, but he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets... They will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Thank you, Father, that Jesus rose from the dead. We know this has huge implications for our lives both now and for all eternity. And God, I ask that as we're allowed this morning to peer into eternity through this text, that what we see would motivate us to live the way you want us to live in the here and now so we can know for certain where we will spend eternity. God, eternity is way too long to be wrong about this subject. And so help us to listen attentively as if this may be the last sermon we'll ever hear. And Lord, help me to speak in a way as if this was the last sermon I would ever preach. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, just to set the context here of Luke chapter 16, this is a chapter really all about the proper use of money. It starts with Jesus telling his disciples a parable about an unrighteous steward who shrewdly used his master's money to make friends with people after he'd been fired. Look back at verse 9, he says, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. And so Jesus exhorted his disciples to be faithful stewards who wisely invested their money, the money that God provided them into their future in heaven by helping others rather than just spending it all on themselves. In essence, he was implying that how we use our money here on earth determines how we will spend our eternity. Now, this didn't go over real big with the Pharisees. Look at verse 14. Now, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. They knew that Jesus was talking about them because they were profiting financially under the guise of serving God. Verse 13, notice he says, no servant can serve two masters, for either will he hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And so here the Pharisees were trying to do exactly what he said was impossible to do. They were trying to serve God and money at the same time. And these religious leaders pretended to be devoted to God on the outside, but on the inside they were really in love with their wealth and their possessions and they could, what they could get out of serving Him. They wore nice clothes, they lived in nice houses in the nice parts of town, and they had extravagant, extravagant parties and invited all the important people to come to their parties. And what's ironic is it was their wealth... That made them so confident that God was pleased with their lives and and, and gave them the false assurance that they would go to heaven when they died. Because in the Jewish culture of that day, wealth was a sign of God's favor. It was assumed that if you were rich, you were obviously being blessed by God for living a righteous life. And on the other hand, if you were poor, you had obviously done something wrong and you were under God's curse. And naturally, the Pharisees showed off their wealth as evidence of their righteousness. That God is pleased with us. God is blessing us. And Jesus told them that even though the people might be impressed, God wasn't. Verse 15, he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. In other words, you guys are disgusting to God. Furthermore, he says if they continued in their greedy, covetous lifestyle, they would end up in hell. And that's the point of the story he's about to tell them, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus wanted them to to realize that the eternal consequences of being unfaithful stewards who fail to use their money to help others, but instead they selfishly use it on themselves. He was, again, instructing them to use mammon of unrighteousness, that's money, to gain friends in high places. In other words, when they get to eternity, there'll be no one there to help them out. What goes around comes around. And so just from a surface reading of this chapter and the story we're about to zero in on here, you might conclude that this rich man missed salvation because he was not generous enough with his money. But Jesus' point was that the selfish way he used his money simply exposed the true nature of his heart, the true, his true spiritual condition. The real reason his soul was damned to hell for all eternity was because he had disregarded and disobeyed God's word. And I believe the the last few verses that lead up to verse 19, lead up to this story, hold the key to understanding the true meaning of this story. Notice verse 16, Jesus talks about the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Verse 18 Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries the one who is divorced from a husband, from a husband commits adultery. Jesus' point is that the Pharisees made a big deal about keeping the law while the whole time they were breaking it. They were even divorcing their wives in some cases. And so the bottom line was that they were merely patronizing the Scriptures. They paid lip service to the Bible, but they distorted and disobeyed it. And as we're going to see, the main point of this story is not so much about what you do with your money as it is what you do with the Word of God. Ultimately, it's what you do with the truth of the Bible that determines where you spend eternity, not what you do with your money, but what you do with the Bible. And so with that background in mind, let's look at this story. It's a story of the lives and the eternities of two men, a rich man and a poor man. And I've just broken this story into two sections here. We're going to see, first of all, two men in time, verses 19 through 22. And then, secondly, we're going to see two men in eternity. Two men in eternity. Let's look, first of all, at two men in time, verse 19. Now, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. So here was a flamboyant fellow who was in the habit of wearing very expensive clothes, the kind of clothes worn by kings and princes. Every meal he had was a gourmet feast. He denied himself no pleasure. He had everything he wanted. He had ease. He had comfort. That's all he really ever knew. He wallowed in extravagance. He lived in the lap of luxury. If Robin Leach was alive at the time, he would have surely interviewed him for the lives of the rich and famous. He was the envy of all of his neighbors and friends. His life was one big party every day of his life. Notice here, Jesus never accused this guy of any huge, heinous crime or open being openly hostile toward God. There, there's no indication here that he was ever mean to Lazarus. He, he didn't have him removed. Get that guy out of my sight. I want to see him at my door. He didn't kick him every time he left the gate of his, of his palace, of his mansion. The issue wasn't what he did, but what he didn't do. And the fact is, he never did anything to help Lazarus, even though he had, he had the means to make Lazarus' life better. And yet he simply went on living his life for himself. He, 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 and, and, and by the way, he wouldn't have lived this way if he truly loved God and loved others, which we know are the two greatest commandments, right? When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And his selfish lifestyle proved that he really didn't love God. 1 John 3.17 says this, Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? The point is, it doesn't. Notice verse 20. Jesus shifts the attention to the other character in the story, the poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. We need to note something interesting here. This poor crippled beggar is the only character in any of Jesus' parables that is given a name. And some commentators take this to mean that this wasn't just a parable, but an actual incident, which it could very well have been. This could have been a true historical account. And so here was this poor man, Lazarus, who had no money, he dressed in rags, his emaciated body was covered with open sores from head to toe, he was too crippled to walk, and he had to be carried around by other people, and they would plop him down outside the the front gate of the rich man's mansion where he would hope to beg just a few scraps from one of his daily banquets, and if things weren't bad enough, he had to continually shoo away the dogs who wanted to lick his wounds. It may have been that Jesus was implying that even the dogs were more compassionate and merciful than the rich man, that at least they were trying to minister to this poor man's needs. Notice that despite his difficult life, Lazarus never complained or blamed God. Apparently, he feared God and trusted him to take care of him. In fact, his name, Lazarus, literally means God is my help. Now, again, remember who's hearing this? Who's listening to this story? It's the Pharisees. And in their minds, riches were the proof of divine approval and blessing. They would have naturally assumed then that this rich guy was a shoe in for heaven. And they surely would have been repulsed by the despicable condition of Lazarus and probably were convinced that he was worthy of nothing but divine judgment. And they could have never imagined what they had coming in the story, how this story would turn. But look at verse 22. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. This is a great reminder to all of us that death is no respecter of persons. doesn't matter who you are, how much you own, what your status level is. You're going to die just like the next guy. So both men died here. Nothing is said about Lazarus' burial. His body was most likely dragged outside the gates of Jerusalem and thrown into the trash pile to be burned, but his soul went to heaven, as we'll see in a moment. The rich man, on the other hand, no doubt had an elaborate funeral that was attended by all the important people in the city, and his body was likely embalmed in a lavish tomb, but his soul went to hell. One commentator said it this way, as the two men's souls passed through death's portal, an amazing reversal occurred. Angelic pallbearers bore Lazarus's soul to paradise, while the rich man's soul was unceremoniously pitched into the fires of hell. Talk about a total role reversal. Lazarus was given a place of honor in heaven, reclining at, at a banquet next to none other than the revered father of Israel. Abraham himself. And in stark contrast, the, the rich man found himself all alone in hell with nothing but his tormented conscience. It reminds me of what Jesus said in Luke, earlier in Luke, Luke chapter 9, verse 25, for what is a man profited if, if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his own soul? We need to understand from what God's saying here in his word that our lives never end. Do you you realize that? That our lives never end. We are eternal creatures who were designed by God to live forever. And he made us with a body and a soul. And while our bodies will die, our souls will live on throughout all eternity in one of two places, either heaven or hell. Well, that's two men in time. Let's look now at two men in eternity. Again, notice how the tables have completely turned here. Verse 23, In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, "...being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to that that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony." And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there where you are to us. Notice that the rich man is now the beggar. And he's begging Lazarus for a single drop of water just to, just to put on the tip of his tongue to, to cool his tongue. But Abraham refused the request. And he reminded him that during his lifetime, he had every opportunity to help Lazarus with a portion of the abundance that God had blessed him with. I mean, this guy was lying at your doorstep every day, and yet you chose to use your possessions for your own pleasure. He, on the other hand, endured many painful trials during his life, and he remained faithful to God, and now he gets to enjoy the comforts that you enjoyed on earth. And you get to experience the agonies that he endured. Besides, he says, there's this uncrossable, an uncrossable chasm that permanently separates those who are in heaven from those who are in hell. Now, I'm sure you've read the recent surveys just like I have, and they reveal that most people don't believe that hell exists. I don't think there's a place called hell. But that's not what the Bible says. In fact, you may not realize this, but Jesus actually spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. And there's some things that we can learn about hell from this passage this morning. Four things to be exact. Number one, hell is real. Hell is real. I thought maybe someone should write a book called Hell is Real, one rich guy's journey to hell, preserved here in the scriptures for us. Listen, hell is not a fairy tale. It's not something that preachers made up or your parents made up to scare you into living right, not getting in trouble. There really is a conscious existence after death. For those who choose not to repent of their sin and follow Christ, hell is real. Number two, hell is torture. Hell is torture. You may have noticed as I read this text, four times the words agony and torment are used to express the indescribable pain and suffering that this rich man was experiencing in hell. And we know that throughout the the, the Bible, hell is referred to as a place of eternal, unquenchable fire, where the worm does not die, a lake of fire and brimstone, outer darkness. In other words, it's pitch black. You can't see anything, but you can hear people apparently weeping and gnashing their teeth all around you as they're being tormented night and day forever and ever. And I imagine that the the worst thing about hell will be being terrorized by by your conscience as it haunts you regarding all the times you had an opportunity to repent, but didn't. I would hate to think that some of you in eternity would be remembering this Easter Sunday message, where you're being given an opportunity to hear the truth and to respond to it. Don't reject this opportunity. Don't blow off this opportunity that God has given you this morning. So hell is real. Hell is torture. Hell is just. Hell is just. You've heard the argument, I'm sure. Well, how could a loving God create a place like hell, let alone send anyone there to suffer for all eternity? My God, right? That's how is. My God would never do that. Well, the question is, is your God the God of the Bible? See, the first thing we need to understand is that while God is a loving God, He is also a holy God, and He hates sin and is bound by His holy character to punish it. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is what? Is death, Romans 6.23. In other words, we earn death. We work hard for it. We deserve In the same way you deserve to get paid when you work, we deserve to die and go to hell because of our sinful rebellion against God. It's only right. A second thing we need to realize is that God originally created hell for Satan and his demons, not us. Satan and his demons were... In heaven, they were angels originally, and and they refused to worship and glorify God, and they rebelled against him, and Satan actually said, I will be like God. And God said, oh, no, you won't. (laughs) I don't share my glory with anyone, and he cast him out of heaven into hell. And so hell is where people go who, like Satan and his demons, refuse to glorify and honor God here on earth. And it's totally fair, it's totally just for God to shut us out of His glory forever. He's only giving us what we want. I mean, if we don't care about His glory during our lifetime, it shouldn't matter if we're separated from His glory for all eternity. And the last thing we need to understand is that God doesn't send anyone to hell. People choose to go to hell. By refusing to turn from their sin and, and trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's what the scripture teaches. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, it talks about... How the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire. This is the return of Christ. And he will, be, he will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. The point is this, that whenever hell is talked about in the scriptures, it's always referred to in the context of unrepentant and unbelieving people. In other words, if you go to hell, it's your own fault. You can't put that on God and say, well, 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 God sent me here. No, no, you sent you here because you failed to repent. You failed to believe the gospel. And so hell is real, it's torture, it's just. And then lastly, hell is final. Hell is final. This has to be the most awful thing about hell is that there is no end. And there's no escape. There's no second chances. The moment you die, your eternal destiny is sealed forever. No one can pray you out of hell or pay their way out of hell or pay your way out of hell. You need to stay there and suffer forever and ever. This idea of purgatory, it's not in the Bible. You can't find it. It doesn't exist. Notice verse 27 there in Luke 16. Interesting transition here. In light of where he was and what he was experiencing and having been denied any comfort, any escape, if you will, from this awful place, the rich man says in verse 27, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Listen, if I can't get out of here, then at least send 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 Lazarus to tell my brothers so don't come here. And so once this rich man realized there was there was nothing that Lazarus could do to relieve this agonizing permanent condition in hell, he suddenly became evangelistic. And he was burdened for his five brothers and begged Abraham to please send Lazarus to warn them so they don't end up in hell here with me. One of the hardest things I have to do as a pastor is, is uh, preach at a funeral service sometimes when the person who died wasn't a believer. It's very difficult for a family, obviously, if the family knew the Lord and their loved one who died didn't, Uh, or there's times I've been invited by an unsafe family from our community, just we need a pastor, we need somebody to do the funeral, I said, I I would absolutely love to serve you in that way, And, and so it's a very difficult situation to be in, right, because everyone there wants to have some kind of reassurance, some kind of hope, some kind of comfort that this guy's okay, and oftentimes preachers will compromise and they'll... they'll they'll say these pious platitudes where everyone leaves thinking, well, that guy was, he's good. He's in heaven. He's in a better place. When that may not be the case. And so rather than giving people false assurance that this person's in heaven or uncaringly informing him, well, I just want you all to know he's in hell. That's probably not what you, you need to tell people at a funeral. What I typically say is something like, listen, if so-and-so could be here right now, I know exactly what they would say. I know exactly what they would want you to know, what they would want you to hear. That's true. Whether you are in heaven or hell, right? We know exactly what you would want to say to people at your funeral. Well, this rich brother knew his brothers well. They were still living the same way he had, and they would surely suffer the same fate if they didn't repent and change the way they were living. And might I just note this, that the fact that this rich man didn't want his brothers to join him in hell corrects the the common misconception that some people have that, that hell is going to be just one big party where you get to keep on doing what you used to do here on earth I mean, that's what these guys were doing. They were just having a party every day. And there have been several people in my lifetime who have actually told me they wouldn't mind going to hell because they would just party with their friends. Believe me, hell is no party. It's a place of eternal pain, torment, and loneliness. It's the last place you would ever want to be regardless of who else you were there with. Notice how Abraham's response responds, verse 29. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Moses and the prophets was Jesus' way of referring to the scriptures, specifically the Old Testament. And what he was saying was that the Old Testament contained everything the rich man and his brothers needed to know in order to avoid ending up in hell. The problem is they ignored what the Bible said. I would venture to say that the rich man and his brothers were good Jewish boys who grew up going to the synagogue. They might even have sung, Father Abraham, amen. He said, I don't know. They probably think they grew up, right? They heard the scriptures. They taught Sabbath, they were taught Sabbath after Sabbath. They heard the scriptures over and over again. They knew the Ten Commandments. They they had probably even memorized passages from the Torah. And through their exposure to the Bible, they understood that salvation depended on them looking forward to and putting their faith in the Messiah, the one to come. And yet, even though they had learned all this stuff, they'd never done anything about it. They failed to take the scriptures seriously. They never really listened and never applied the scriptures to the way they lived their life. And the rich man knew that. The question is, do you know that? Some of you who are visiting with us this morning saying, oh, man, I get it. Man, he's, this preacher's fired up. He's, he's coming after me this morning because I just came here on Easter, and he's going to let me have it. And No, not really, because I'm equally concerned for those of you who come to Lakeside Bible Church every Sunday. And you've heard the word week after week, month after month, year after year, and you've been exposed to the scriptures, and yet you aren't really listening. You've never really applied them. You're sitting here thinking maybe you're saved when you're really not. You might be just like these brothers who had the truth. They had been so well fed, not just physically, but spiritually, and yet they were dead in their trespasses and sins. Notice how the rich man tried to reason with Abraham in verse 30. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. In other words, they've already had the scriptures and all these years and it still hasn't made an impact in their life. So if, if they got a visit from a ghost, I mean, they, they would, that would get their attention. They will surely change their ways after that. I mean, come on, what would, what would be more convincing than seeing a dead person come back to life? Yeah, really. <laughs> That's exactly the point. What would be more convincing than the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I mean, you can imagine these five brothers lounging in the family mansion, gorging themselves on fine food and drink, and all of a sudden they hear a knock on the door. And one of them goes to get the door, and he opens it, and there stands the old beggar Lazarus back from the dead to haunt them. The rich man was convinced, hey, I know they'll listen to him. And I know they'll repent. Well, whether he realized it or not, the rich man's adamant request revealed his lack of confidence in the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. And that's what Jesus reminded him of in verse 31. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, the scriptures, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. If the Bible isn't enough to persuade them to change their lives, then nothing will cause them to change, not even if someone rose from the dead. Why? Because the issue is not a lack of evidence, but a lack of obedience. The reason why people don't change their lives is because they don't want to submit to the Bible. They like the way their life is. They like to do what they want to do, when they want to do it, with who they want to do it. They don't want to do it God's way. And so when you come to people who love their sin and don't want to give it up, and they don't want to submit to to God and His Word... It's not going to matter if some guy's resurrected. They, they would still refuse to repent. They would even reinterpret the evidence to make it mean something else. Well, that's not really what that means. Well, we know that not long after Jesus told this story, a man did come back from the dead. His name was Lazarus, not the same Lazarus as this story. Do you remember how the these Pharisees, the Religious leaders who were hearing this story responded when they heard about Lazarus' resurrection? Do you remember? They wanted to kill him in order to destroy the evidence. And of course, we ultimately know that Jesus himself rose from the dead, and these same religious leaders denied it, and they tried to cover it up by paying off the guards who witnessed the resurrection, and said, "Hey, listen, here, give you some money. Just tell them this is a story. Let's get all let's, everybody get our story straight, okay? You fell asleep, and the disciples came and stole the body, and you don't know where it is, okay? You got that? Okay, here you go, and we'll cover we'll cover your butts, okay? If anybody finds out, okay, we got you covered. And so here in this final verse." Jesus was clearly alluding to his own resurrection. And how even that miracle of miracles, that evidence of evidences, of all evidences, even that wouldn't be enough to persuade these guys to repent of their sin and place their faith in him as their Lord and Savior. And with that concluding line, Jesus close the curtains to the afterlife, as it were, and we're ushered back into the presence. We're back here, sitting at Lakeside Bible Church Easter Sunday morning. So what lessons can we learn from this story? Well, there's an invaluable lesson, and that is this, everything We need to know to prepare for life after death is right here. It's in the Bible. And what we do with the Bible will determine where we go when we die. That's what it comes down to. Bottom line, what we do with what the Bible says will determine where we go when we die. And if we believe and obey what it says about turning away from our life of sin, our rebellion against God, and trusting in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the one who died on the cross and took the punishment for our sin uh, to save us, we will spend eternity in heaven. But if we reject that or ignore what the Bible says, we will end up in hell alongside this rich man. You might be someone here this morning who has always had a hard time believing. You're, you're just you just need some evidence. You need some. You gotta to see it to believe it, kind of person, and 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 you're just not convinced that this Christianity thing really is true and. You're, you're holding out for more evidence. You're waiting for more information before you make a decision whether or not to commit your life to follow Christ. Listen, you will never find any evidence more compelling and more convincing than this thing right here. This is it. I don't care what you discover, what scientists and doctors and who knows what people discover, it will never be as convincing as the Scripture's. In fact, Jesus himself pointed people to the Bible to persuade them to believe in him. You probably remember in Luke chapter 24, later on in this same book, the same gospel, after Jesus died and rose again, he met up with two disciples on the road to a mace. Remember that? And they were having a hard time comprehending that Jesus actually was resurrected. And as you know, he walked along with them for quite a while, and he actually um, had a meal with them. And, and yet the whole time, they, they didn't get it. They didn't recognize him. And at any point, he could have said, Surprise! It's me! Look! Touch me! Feel me! I'm, I'm, I'm alive! But instead... Luke tells us that, quote, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. In other words, he said, hey guys, it's not about me, it's about this thing right here. Just it's it's all it's all right here. It's all right here. And so consequently, it wasn't the resurrection that convinced them of the truth of the Bible, it was the exact opposite. It was the Bible that convinced them of the truth of the resurrection. And so it should be with us. Doctors and scientists can do all sorts of studies and provide provide us with all sorts of evidence, but no amount of evidence will ever convince us to believe in Christ because our problem, again, is not a lack of evidence. It's a lack of faith. And faith only happens, only comes by hearing the word of Christ. That's what the scripture says. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. And that's precisely what you have been hearing today, is the word of Christ. And if there's anything that's going to make a difference in your life, it's what you've just heard this morning. I'll close with a, another quote from that old dead English pastor, preacher, J.C. Ryle. In his thoughts on this text, he said, quote, this wretched waiting for something which we have not, and neglect of what we have is the ruin of thousands of souls. Faith, simple faith in the scriptures, which we already possess, is the first thing needful to salvation. The man who has the Bible and can read it and yet waits for more evidence before he becomes a decided Christian is deceiving himself, and except he awakens from his delusion, he will die in his sins. Let's pray. I want to just give you an opportunity this morning just to think about what you've heard today. This is just an opportunity just to quietly be with just you and the Lord, head bowed, eyes closed. And if you're here this morning and you're convicted by what you've heard, that you know that you walked in here an unrepentant, unbeliever, and you want to repent, you want to believe this morning, you want to embrace the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the crucified, risen Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I want to encourage you just to pray a simple prayer. And let me just suggest to you what you might pray. And you don't need to pray it out loud. Just in your heart, make this the prayer of your heart. You could simply pray, dear God, I know you created me to honor and obey you. But I've rebelled against you and deserve to die and go to hell. But I also believe that you love me so much. You sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. And he rose again to prove that you accepted his sacrifice in my place. Please forgive me for my sin. Help me to repent and change the way that I live my life. I submit my entire life to Jesus as my Lord, as my Master. And from this day forward, I commit myself to follow and obey him. Father, we've heard the truth of your word this morning. We've heard the word of Christ, and we know that that is the only thing that has the power to save. And I pray, Lord, that you would accomplish your work of salvation in the hearts of those who need to be granted repentance and faith today. Lord, for those of us who came here to rejoice in our resurrected Lord and Savior, may we rejoice even more so, knowing that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we will never, ever have to experience the the horrors of hell that have been described in this text today, that you rescued us, you delivered us by your great grace and mercy, Lord, those of us who are so undeserving, unworthy. Lord, we are forever in your debt. May we live every day of our lives to love you in return for the great love with which you've loved us. And when we're tempted by sin, Lord, to give in to our flesh, that we would think, how could I sin against such great love? And so bless us now, Lord, as we continue to rejoice and celebrate in the resurrection of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.